So if you want to go ahead and be turning to Luke chapter 15, verses 7 and verse 10 is where we're going to start off in the text today. Um, so last week we made 21 observations off of a verse in the book of Revelation. So we were looking last last time at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and we were just kind of examining it and trying to pick it apart and um, get an idea of what life is like in the present heaven or in the intermediate state. Um, and I, I hope that it was informative. I hope that it um, was thought-provoking, uh, that it left you with as many questions as we answered at least. Um, one question that we're going to be looking at today that kind of comes out of that, um, I, I think it's probably going to be an obvious question that comes out of some of the observations that we made last week. And this, So um, kind of just to, to kind of put us back in the mindset, the context of where we left off last week, as we were examining um, that passage in Revelation and we were picking things out of it, there were, there were things in there that um, should not have been surprising to you. There were observations that we made last time uh, that we were together that shouldn't be new observations. And then there were some, some things that uh, you may have heard before, but um, maybe, maybe you not spent any time really thinking deeply about it. And then maybe there were some other things that um, you were like, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> or I don't know if that's a good observation to make from that. Um, and one of the questions that probably comes out a lot as we've been kind of uh, asking questions about the intermediate state is the question that we're going to look at uh, here today. Um, and we started looking at it last week, and I would say that the passage that we looked at in, in the book of Revelation there, um, that it does a good job of kind of setting a base for at least thinking about the question that we're going to look at today. And we did spend some time talking about it last time. But what I want to do today is kind of build from where we left off last week and, and look at other texts outside of the book of Revelation to see if we can get a better understanding um, of this particular idea. So the question that we're going to be looking at today, and um, we'll, I'll try to move pretty quickly through the text that we're looking at so that we're not, I don't want to uh, just kind of spend hours and hours on this particular topic, but I do want to uh, point you at a couple of other passages within Scripture where, where you can see similar types of things and um, hopefully that we can kind of round off the way that we think about this question. So, are those who are in heaven now aware of what is happening on earth now? That's the question that we're going to look at tonight. I want to state that for you again. Are those who are in heaven now aware of what is going on on earth now. Now, when we looked at last week, as we looked at Revelation, we see the martyrs and we see um, this. We're dealing with the prophetic book in Revelation. So we need to understand as we approach that book that um, we don't want to plant flags or hills that we're going to die on um, first and foremost, primarily out of those things, it, out, of, out of a book like that. It's good to come to a book like Revelation with ideas fleshed out and then step in there. But for some of these questions that are heavenly, where we get 
sparse details throughout Scripture, uh, Revelation gives us a glimpse into, kind of a glimpse behind the curtain, if you will, um, in that regard that is very useful for triggering our minds in thinking about uh, these types of questions. So today, are those who are in heaven now aware of what is happening on earth now? And I want us to look, start answering this or start, you know, kind of building up our answer around this uh, again this afternoon in Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verse 7 specifically and verse 10 specifically here, and then we're going to move on. So we're going to look at this. We're going to take a few thoughts away from this. We're going to move on to another verse that kind of just to to get our minds thinking, and and then we're going to take some details from that. We've got a handful that we're going to look at. Uh, We'll try to make uh, good, good. I don't want to linger too long on any particular one. I would say if we touch on something that afterwards you're like, I wish you'd have spent more time there. Come to me afterwards. Like this question today is out of last week's, right? Someone mentions a question. And I'm like, we'll just loop that in and we'll address that in more detail. So I want to keep that going and we'll do this until either you run out of questions or get sick of asking me or I'm just like, I got no clue. We can't do that one. <laughs> so so here, here we go. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. So just as I, and just as I get to reading, I'm like, Every one of these that we're going to look into tonight, there is a broader context we are not going to have time to get into. I'm sorry. <laughs> like if we were to go into the context of each and every one of these, we would definitely not get through it in a day. Um, kind of at a high level, we get this idea here of the value of repentance that's in the text that we're going to be looking at. And specifically, Jesus pointing towards heaven's reaction towards repentance. And from that, these two verses that we're looking at. So, so, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's verse 7. I'll read it again, and I want us to think about this. Who is, re- who is rejoicing here? Right, that's the question that I want you to be thinking about. Who is rejoicing here? Does God rejoice over the sinners that repent? Absolutely. Do the angels rejoice over the sinners that repent? Well, the verse 10, we're going to see specifically that at least in the presence of angels, there's rejoicing. We could assume that also they're rejoicing along with the, whether it be God that's rejoicing there, whether it be other angels that are rejoicing. So verse 10, um, this is... Just a little bit further down, it's part of a different, same overall train of thought, uh, just a different example and different wording here. So, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Alright, so there's joy. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And in the presence of angels, there is joy and rejoicing when one repents. Now, is is it a stretch? I'm going to ask you some questions, okay? Are there believers in heaven? Are there angels in heaven? Is God in heaven? Are they there together? Are they fellowshipping together? Do you imagine that if you find yourself in heaven and you see the angels rejoicing that you'll be like, Huh, I wonder what that's all about. 
<laughs> what about what about if you see if you see Jesus rejoicing? You're gonna be like, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. Okay, so what I want you to think about here, and I want us to kind of pull from this this idea, is that whether it be angels rejoicing or men rejoicing amongst the angels, those who are present in heaven would be aware of the rejoicing, right? Like that's not a stretch of the imagination to think that if you find yourself in heaven and you see angels rejoicing, that you would be inquisitive of that, that you would likewise rejoice. So what does that mean? What can we conclude then if someone repents and there is rejoicing in heaven. Who, is, who, who finds themselves amongst those who are rejoicing over those who are redeemed on earth? There's, there's bare minimum, bare minimum here, we could come to the conclusion that the saints who are in heaven find out by way of rejoicing angels and by God rejoicing himself the repentant state of individuals on earth today. That's bare minimum, right? That's like, if you'll just allow me to say that if they observe it, that they're going to inquire of it, and that they likewise are going to rejoice, then we could say that those who may have passed before you, and who may have passed before you were redeemed, rejoiced in the presence of God and angels on the day of your redemption. Right? That heaven rejoices. And amongst those in heaven are the saints who were once walking amongst us. Right? So in heaven today, there is an awareness of... And here's one of those things that's... I want you to... This is again... Just think about this. Think about this. The right at which they would be rejoicing in heaven over individuals who are... This is like this entire thing is he says, there's a group of a hundred. One of them is gone. Ninety-nine don't need saving. One does. And when that one individual is, heaven rejoices over it. This is a, this is a small detail, right? This is... Like, it's one thing for us to say that like the martyrs in heaven that we read about last week in Revelation are aware that those who have who did harm to them have yet to be judged in the final judgment. That's one thing, right? That's a big detail, right? Like is this whole thing finished? Have has the resurrection happened? No? Okay, well then we're still in the intermediate heaven is what those who are in heaven could conclude. But what we're looking at here is a very, very, very small thing. The day that I was saved, there were people in heaven and angels in heaven that rejoiced over that. It was a big deal for me. Right? Probably not a big deal for everybody else. But it was a big deal for heaven. You, the day that you came to Christ, the day that you believed the word about him, heaven rejoiced. Not just angels, not just God, but those who found themselves there. I think that's a safe 
conclusion that we could draw there. I do not think that's a big stretch of our imagination. So, that's Luke chapter 15, verses 7 and verse 10. Now I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Before we go into this, I want to put this... This is slightly... This is a little bit of a guardrail that I want to place out there, right? Um, this verse, verses, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This verse could be read and understood as the lives lived by the saints that came before us stand in witness to the lives that we should live in faith, Right? That's what this verse could be read as. That is a proper way of interpreting this text. Before we go into it, I want to say that. That that is a proper way to interpret this. That the lives of those lived in faith, all of those that are listed in the chapter before that's mentioned about the, it's literally the whole of faith that we're coming out of into chapter 12 of Hebrews, that it, all of their lives stand as a witness to the life that we should live. All right? Before we read this, I want to go so far as to say there's nothing in this verse that we will read that excludes this understanding. That they are literally witnesses over the lives that we live and the races that we run. There's nothing in this text that excludes that from the way that we understand this text. All right? So if you read this text and you say the lives that they lived stand before us as an example, as a witness to the life that we should live, 100% absolutely. But what if also, when we read this text, that we are literally surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses? What if, as, as those who have been victorious over this life and gone before us, the triumphant church, we'll call them, the triumphant church in heaven. Those who find themselves completely and fully restored. They do not walk in sin. They do not desire sin. They find themselves in the presence of God. What be it if they are witness to the lives that we live and cheer us on? That's a way that I think that you could understand this as well. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who, when Stephen was stoned, found himself standing, encouraging him as a witness to the life that Stephen lived. No? I do not think that it's a stretch to consider that those who have gone before us might at times look on and cheer us on. Alright, Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 31 is where we're going to be looking at next. This is the transfiguration. Uh, 
So again, I know some had come in after we'd, we'd gotten kicked off. I want to remind you of the question that we're trying to answer tonight. came out of last week's. I encourage you to go back, re-listen to that. Um, so are those who are in heaven now aware of what is happening on earth now? We've looked at Luke chapter 15, verses 7 and 10, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 there. Now we're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 31. So read, read with me here. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So I want us to consider what it is that Moses and Elijah are aware of, what they're talking about, where they were before this, where they came to, right? What's happening? Where were, question, where were Moses and Elijah before this? They were in heaven, right? That wasn't a trick question. They were in heaven. What were they doing in heaven? Enjoying the presence of God? Enjoying the presence of the saints? Rejoicing? When those who were redeemed, when news of it spread, right? They were there enjoying heaven. And then they just show up, just boop, out of the blue, like they're enjoying heaven and then like transported. And, and what am I doing here? Oh, there's Jesus. Like what, what's going on? Like such confusion. Is that what took place, you imagine? No confusion in heaven, right? They were aware. They des- You'd think they desired to come and encourage Christ in this moment. Do you think that this was a thing that they were excited about? Do you think that they knew what he was going, where he was going? Yes, they looked forward to this day and rejoiced. 100%. So now they get to step down for a moment and speak with him. Now, another question. Another question. Um, had Peter and John and James ever seen Moses or Elijah? Had they ever seen them? How did they know who they were is the question that I have when I read this. How did they know? Probably Jesus was like, Moses, what's up? You think they used you think Jesus used their names? I don't I don't think they just knew. I don't. I think that I I don't think that they saw them or were like, oh this I think that they can they heard the conversation. They were Jesus brought them here so that they could participate in this. They see this, they hear this, and from this from the conversation that Jesus has with them, they come to the conclusion of who it is. They either hear names or it's obvious when he's like talking about, you know, like maybe they're talking about the law. And he's like, you remember when the the bush? And he was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, that's Moses. I got that one right there that I see that I can lay eyes on. That's 
Moses. And then you see the conversation progresses and how all of the all of the words, all of the things that they had done were about to find their yes in Jesus. And they're like, that's Elijah. I know that because in in his prophecies, I see this and I hear him talking about it. Right. I don't think that they understood by some miraculous means of like it was injected into their brains. I think that they understood in the same way that you and I would understand if you had never seen me, but you had heard about me and you were witness to my mother speaking to me and you heard it. What would you conclude over some time? Listening into that conversation. You had never seen me before. You'd never seen a picture of me. You had not seen me on Facebook. You don't know what I look like, but you would come to the conclusion because they're conversing. What does that mean about their knowledge of who they were? There's. Okay, so Moses comes. And it's Moses, right? This continuity of identity, right? Also continuity of memory for them in this moment, right? They had died. They were in heaven. Now they're here speaking with Jesus. And it's still Moses. It's still Elijah, right? And they're talking about things that they had prophesied of, no doubt. As soon as you hear Moses quoting from Moses, it's like, that's him, right? So like, they're hearing this. They're hearing this. What does that tell us? What can we conclude about, about the, like, the state and nature of heaven? I, I, this, I want us to think about these things, right? I want us to think about these things. They knew what was coming. They weren't in a state of confusion, dropped in out of nowhere. Their existence when they were enjoying God in heaven and the moment that they, God per- perhaps came and said, it's time for you to go talk to my son. He's, you know where he's going. You've prophesied of these things. Now, I'm going to give you the special opportunity to step in again in a moment that will be recorded in the text. And we see this at the transfiguration. What does this tell us? What what are the things that we can conclude uh, when we read texts like this? Specifically when it comes to this question. Are those who are in heaven now, that would have been, like at the moment of the transfiguration, that was Moses and Elijah. They were in heaven, Right? Are they aware of what's happening on earth now? Were they aware of what was taking place in Jesus' life? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, this is a couple of places that I just want us to kind of look. And we're we're really close to the end here. We're on the last verse that we're going to look at tonight as we consider this question. Now, This is one of those I've got plenty of time and I could eat up 45 minutes on the context alone of the next verse that we're going to to look at. And I'm not going to do it. I'm going to encourage you to go and do it. Okay, so we're going to be looking at first Samuel chapter 28 verses 15 through 19 is the is the snippet that we're going to look at here. I'm going to have to give you a little context, Um, but. 
time, time would fail us if I tried to give you all of the context. So what we're looking at here is um, that time Saul thought that it would be a good idea to go get a witch to conjure up Samuel. Right? Um, and we find the witch surprised that what she was doing actually worked. <laughs> Okay, if you read the full context of this, he he's like God is not speaking to him. The prophets are not speaking to him. He's been cut off from all word from heaven. And he is like, you know how I said to get rid of all the witches and sorcerers and the necromancers, anybody that would talk to the dead. You know how I said to get rid of them? Well, I'm going to cover myself up. I'm going to pretend like I'm someone else and I'm going to find one to go talk to. To see if they can conjure up for me Samuel, old friend, prophet, to give me some advice about what's coming. And no more can he tell the witch who it is that he wants her to conjure up that Samuel makes an appearance. Like there's not like this like stirring a stew and putting a thing in a potion. There's like it's literally who do you want me to call Samuel? And before Like before it can even click in her mind, it's literally the very next thing that happens is she sees Samuel and she's startled that she sees it. Now here's, here's my takeaway from this. If I can speak to the dead, the first couple of times that I would have done it, I would have be surprised that it worked. Absolutely, because that's a strange thing. But if it was something that I was known for and it wasn't just a thing of trickery, then you would imagine that it's like, yeah, just tell me and I'll do it, right? Why is it she's so surprised? That's an, that's, that's, as, I, as I approach this, that's the context that I want to kind of place before you. Is Why is it that she's so surprised? Is it, yes, God had been up to this moment not saying anything to him. He let him go to the very wit's end to the point that he would show who he is, show his distrust, not persistence in prayer, not persistence in pursuing God to to give him a response, but that he would go to a worldly mechanism. And just before that mechanism could even take place, we see Samuel drop in. Surprise her, surprise him. If you read some commentaries, a surprising number of commentaries, actually, like as I was looking at this, I was like, there's a lot of commentaries that seem to just overlook the fact that the word itself says that it's Samuel. Um, a, a lot presume that this is some evil spirit, but it's Samuel because the text literally says that it was Samuel. It doesn't say that it was a spirit disguised as Samuel. It's Samuel. Samuel also speaks truth to him that we're going to see play out over the next chapters in the book of Samuel. We won't go that far tonight, but um, for the same reason that that I wanted us to look at Luke chapter 9 and the uh, transfiguration and, and these People who were in heaven finding themselves on earth, aware of the goings on on earth, right? That's what we see um, in the transfiguration. The same thing we see here um, with Samuel. Samuel's in heaven. He's disturbed to be brought back to earth for this. Like, it's like, what are you doing, Saul? Like, what 
what, what are you doing? That's effectively the, the way that he responds here. So um, let's read the text and then we'll just think, of, think about it for a second. And then we'll, um, we'll, we'll come to some conclusions and be done. So 1 Samuel chapter 28, dropping in way into the context of this. We find ourselves in verse 15. Then Samuel, who? Then Samuel, not then a evil spirit disguised as Samuel, but then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to to tell me what, I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. So is Samuel aware of the words that he had spoken previously to death? He's aware of them now after death as he's come from heaven for a moment to speak with Saul. So why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So is Samuel aware of what's going on? Yes. And he's aware even why it is that it's going on. Moreover, so even more than just having an awareness of what's going on on earth and having an understanding of why this thing is taking place on earth, he has an awareness, just as he did when he was alive to prophesy into the future, he says in verse 19, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. What does it mean that they will be with him? Dead. (laughs) You're going to be dead tomorrow. So Samuel comes from heaven, aware of what's going on, aware of what the Philistines are doing, aware of what they're planning, knows exactly what's coming tomorrow. He's not unaware of the situation on earth as he is in heaven. At the very least, he was given a good brief before arrival by God. This was not a surprise happenstance, the witch called you to me. This was what God had been withholding, now giving, by way of one who was in heaven, aware of the situation, and who understood what was coming the next day. And if we don't have time to read all the way through it, if you read on through the text in the book of 1 Samuel You will find, in fact, that the prophet was as much a prophet in death as he was in life um, because absolutely Saul and his sons find themselves dead at the hands of the Philistines. So, 
We've looked at a couple of different passages of text tonight trying to build up our thoughts around this question are those who are in heaven now aware of what is happening on earth now. We can say to some extent, certainly, certainly. If we find ourselves tonight or Sunday proclaiming the word or any day between now and then you find yourself in the world proclaiming the word, proclaiming the gospel and someone repents, heaven is aware. Not just God who knows all and knew all. Not just the angels and whose presence there will be great rejoicing, but all of heaven is aware. And that is what many would consider to be a small detail, right? The salvation of one, you're telling me that all heaven is aware of the salvation of one? That's what God's Word says. So if those details are available to heaven, those small details the details of the salvation of an individual one. And we can look at this and see individuals coming from heaven to earth, communicating about what's going on on earth. It's not a stretch for us to come to the conclusion that there is some awareness in heaven. To what extent? I couldn't tell you. I don't know to what extent. I would, I would hesitate to tell you that it is like they're watching a live stream of your life every single day. Scripture does not give us that type of indication. But there is some means by which heaven is aware of earth. And the inhabitants of heaven are aware of the goings on on earth. We're going to conclude there tonight. Um, next week, we're going to step from this into a question that would come by way of this. If they're aware of what's going on on earth, to what extent do those in heaven communicate with God on our behalf? Right? We would call this prayer. Like, so the question then that we'll address next time is, do those in heaven lift up prayers for us on earth? Right? Now I want I want to to put this out there because like the idea of praying for someone in heaven is not what we're putting forward here. Right? Or the idea of praying for someone who hasn't yet made it to heaven, right? We're not talking about a purgatory type situation where you're praying for someone who's died that hasn't quite made it there yet. That's not the direction that we're talking about this communication, right? How do you know about heaven? As someone living on earth today, how do you know about heaven? You read scripture to learn about heaven. You don't read a book about someone who says they've been there unless they're in the scriptures saying it, right? That's how we know about heaven. We know about heaven by what we can read in God's word about heaven. What do they know about us? They know certainly when we get saved. 
And it was certainly when we get saved. And it would seem, by all of these other observations that we've made in regards to the martyrs who find themselves in heaven, in regards to um, Moses and Elijah, in regards to Samuel here, in regards to the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, that there's likely some other understanding of what's going on in a broad sense from heaven's perspective to earth. So the question then that we'll answer next time, do those who are in heaven pray for those who are on earth? Would you call it prayer? Right? It'd be like, if I'm talking to Dustin, it's just talking to Dustin, right? If Dustin could hear me in my thoughts when I'm far away, that would be like prayer, right? But we're going to use the word prayer because you know what I mean when I say it. That someone interceding on your behalf to the Father, right? Yeah, so that's what we'll, we'll start there. We'll start there first, right? There's at least one man in heaven praying for all of us. His name is Jesus. At least one. We're going we're gonna to start there and then start teasing out, like, if the martyrs are, the martyrs in Revelation seem to be praying for the events, right? Like praying in the sense of interceding on the behalf of those who are suffering. How much farther does that stretch out? Is there anything else that we can find in Scripture there? Uh, we'll touch on that. We'll touch on that next time. I'm going to, we'll, we'll finish up there tonight um, and then...